Hello and welcome. You're in the Real Estate Investors Lounge. So grab a seat and get comfortable as we dive into the strategies, the mindsets, and the motivations of some of the brightest entrepreneurs in the real estate investment world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Real Estate Investors Lounge podcast. Here's your host, Brian Fitzgerald. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Lounge. My name is Brian Fitzgerald, and today we're sitting in with Ryan Carr. Ryan Carr is a full-time real estate investor from the greater Toronto area. He specializes in unconventional residential purchases, new construction concepts, flipping, and coaching others to do the same. Ryan has been known in the past for his knack at finding hidden opportunity. He was a creator of Oshawa's first tiny house, which we'll talk about later and is also a regular contributor to the Canadian Real Estate Wealth magazine, also known as Crew. To me, Ryan is well-established as a real estate investor. Personally, I think his trademark is the look of the light beard and the great hair. I mostly say this this because I have a lot less hair, and facial scruff runs weak in my family. But anyway, enough about me. Let's talk to Ryan. Ryan, are you there? I'm here, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks. I appreciate you taking the time. We were just chatting there uh, before we started recording. About the uh, the pond that you uh, that you might be selling, which is a a building lot, I guess that is full of water right now. So another troubleshooting issue of a real estate investor, eh? It's true. It's true. If it would just stop raining, we could build this house. But yeah. uh, it's been a real challenge this spring. Yeah, it has been. There's been a lot of rain and a lot of unfortunate phone calls for some investors where water is not where it's supposed to be. So oh my goodness, that's the you downside. Bet. Yeah. So so yeah, Ryan. I did a little intro there, and I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to add to that little rundown I threw out there. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think you nailed the man, but just, just real quick, I've, uh, I've been investing full-time since 2012. I predominantly invested in the Durham region, which is just on the outskirts of the GTA. And over the last five, six years, you know, we just had a really good time being full-time investors and you know, running the crews and doing the construction and, and flipping properties. And now we're into, uh, obviously, we've been doing flips and, and two-unit conversions for quite a while. But uh, now we're into new construction and some multifamily and infill development and stuff like that. So it's really, uh, it's really grown from you know, what was basically just me as a one-man show to a full-time real business with you know, full-time staff and all the rest of that stuff that comes along with it. That's very cool. Very cool. So let's take a step back. Like you said, you started investing in 2012. How did that first deal look? And, and can you take us through what that was all about for you? Yeah, for sure. So my first deal was, was a pretty cookie cutter basement apartment in a town called Oshawa. Prior to that, I was working full time as a mechanic. So my, my roots were someone in the trades. Uh, I am a licensed mechanic and I haven't worked on cars since uh, 2012. But you know, when I first got into real estate, I was doing a part time on the side and I had bought this house that had a kind of like a retrofit basement apartment in it that needed a bunch of work. So while I was working my nine to five fixing cars, I was doing real estate on the side. And uh, as I got into doing a little bit more real estate, coincidentally, I got laid off from my full-time job. And, you know, real estate was sort of the closest thing that I had to any real successes outside of fixing cars. And that's, that's how we ventured. So that first deal was really well, I guess my first real deal was like our principal residence before that, but our first uh, investment property was uh, that basement apartment in Oshawa. Okay. So you kind of stole my question there. I was going to ask you, how did you transition from full-time to real estate investor, but you got laid off. So you kind of <laughs> were almost like forced into it, but I guess you saw the path and, and it made sense to you at the time, right? Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, I was fortunate that when I did get laid off, they had given me a little bit of notice, which, you know three, four weeks, a couple of weeks, whatever it was, isn't, isn't a ton of notice, but I came home and I said to my wife, 
I'm like, oh yeah, I'm getting laid off. You know, a whole bunch of people at this place are getting let go. And I'm one of those guys. And she goes, that's amazing. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> she says, yeah. <laughs> she goes, that's amazing. You know, now you can do, you can do something that you love. Not that I didn't love what I was doing then, but you know, real estate was more of a passion and I really enjoyed that now. And if I hadn't have gotten laid off, you know, I think making that transition would have been either non-existent or very, very difficult to pull right. the trigger on my own. And you are allowed to have two passions, even if you want to fix cars and fix houses, you're allowed. It's okay. That's right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll do houses to make ends meet and then uh, we'll fix cars for fun. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're obviously we're well into 2019 now or we're, uh, we're halfway actually, which is kind of crazy. But let's go back like four or five years. What was investing looking like to you kind of more at the start of your portfolio and your career in investing? Like what did that look compared to now? Yeah. So, I mean, my benchmark then was how do I replace my income with my full-time job income? You know, how do I use real estate to, to supplement that? So when I was buying properties, I didn't really have, I didn't have a coach and have a mentor. I didn't have any help when I first got started. I like literally bootstrapped it all myself. And I was asking my realtor and I was asking, you know, friends that knew anything about houses, so to speak. What do I do? How do I navigate this? And, and that was a challenge. Fortunately, we came out, you know, on the other side unscathed and, and we had really good positive experiences. Uh, to get going. So that's, that's really how it kickstarted the portfolio. And then again, starting with the basement apartment, that's kind of like the go-to for most investors because the houses are already there, the basements are existing, the footprint is there. You just have to sort of modify within. So that's kind of how I got rolling. Cool. It's a, a strategy I, I work with as well as the, the basement apartments is there's always two revenues coming in, right? Two uh, streams of income. Yep. And then what I tell a lot of my clients is, you know, it's very rare that you'll have two tenants turning over at the same time. So you can always look at some source of income coming in versus something like a single family, right? Where it's just one income. If it's vacant, you're not getting paid. Whereas a duplex or more, there's always money coming in, right? For sure. For sure. I'm always like, I'm always looking for my downside risk and my upside potential. So like when for anybody just getting started out there or even anybody that's, you know, that's been investing for a bit, I always say to them like, you know, if things go really wrong, what is your downside risk? Like, where can this go? What's the worst case scenario, right? And if things go really right, how well can this be for you? How well, you know, where can you take it? What can you make? That way, you know, like, these are the parameters that I'm working within, right? If your upside is really minimized and your downside is significant, well, maybe that's not a great investment to be putting your money or your effort into. But if your downside is minimized and your upside is significant, well, hey, that's amazing, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's where you want to put your, put your thoughts and put your effort and coincidentally put your, put your money as well. Yeah. And that's the nice thing too with real estate is there's usually in most scenarios, there's multiple exit strategies that don't leave you high and dry or bankrupt. So that's sure. the other reason I like it as well, because there's a way out if you need to. So obviously now, what are you focusing more on now? Like what is your, what's your bread and butter? What is bringing home the bacon for you guys? Bringing right home now. the bacon, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So right now we have nine active projects on the go as of what are we, June 2019. We'll date stamp this podcast, June 2019. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we got nine active projects right now, of which consist of multifamily, uh, new construction, basement apartments, and flips. So we kind of got a myriad of different things on the go. In addition to that, we also have a rental portfolio of uh, cash flowing properties. So between all of those things and the construction and you know all the back end stuff, that's what's keeping us busy. And that's, that's what's generating income for the business. So how did Ryan and Christine evolve from, you know, that first kind of duplex conversion to having this many projects on the go and, and staff? Like, how did you ramp that up from the start to where you are now? 
Yeah. So it started off just with, like we're saying, one project. And then from there, uh, one project led to a second project. And I was basically just doing everything myself, hanging my own drywall, painting my own walls, you know, doing my own permits and all this stuff. And then it sort of grew from there. So businesses always lead and they always scale with sales. You got two sides to any business, real estate or otherwise, right? You've got sales and then you've got fulfillment. So you can't have fulfillment, which in this case would be construction, property management, things like that, without sales. And sales in real estate is buying properties, right? So when I say sales, like you got to go out, you got to find deals. And once you can find those deals, then it can trickle down to everybody else so that you can hire the staff and you can scale the business and you can grow more properties. So for me, I started off doing one and then it came to two and two turned into my third, right? And then once I hit my third, I realized, okay, I can't scale my personal physical labor, but I can scale my thoughts, right? So that's when I hired my first guy. And a lot of people, including myself, run into a situation where you're like, okay, right now I'm doing all the work myself. It's not costing me anything for labor, right? If you're excluding factoring in your own time, it's not costing me anything for labor and I'm making X amount per deal. But if I hire somebody, I'm going to make a little bit less per deal, but I'm able to do more volume, right? So that's where I made that transition and realized, hey, if I bring on, you know, let's say two people onto my team, one, two, three guys, I'm able to do three to five deals a year as opposed to maybe just doing two. And in saying that, as long as the sales are there, that's how you can fulfill the rest of the business. So that's exactly what I did. Okay. And is your wife involved in this? She started off working with me. We did our first couple projects together. And after that, she sort of tailed off and did her own thing. And I carried on with the real estate and then uh, grew it into the team that it is today. Awesome. Very cool. So lately, I've been hearing a little bit about these vertical splits. Yeah. I saw a couple of little videos online uh, that you had posted. And can you explain what a vertical split is for the listeners? Yeah, for sure. So I think it was like 2014, 2015, I came up with this concept called the vertical split. And what a lot of people were doing was the traditional basement apartment. And I still do those depending on the property. But when I was doing the vertical split concept, I was taking bungalows, I was putting in a second set of stairs, right? And I was cutting them front to back or left and right as opposed to a main floor and a basement suite. And what that was giving us was effectively the look and feel of a semi-detached property, but doing so within the same confines of a single family home, right? So it was giving both tenants main floor and basement access, just like a semi-detached or a townhouse would. And it was getting tenants out of basements and into main floor living space. That was the key, was to get people natural sunlight and you know front door, side door access where Everybody has above grade living because that's how we were driving higher rents. And we're still driving higher rents today by doing this concept. And uh, it's just giving the tenants a better, uh, a better way of life and a better experience in the home. Very cool. And then obviously you had the ability to charge higher rents because you're giving main floor space to somebody rather than putting them in the basement, right? I'd assume. Yeah, exactly. So tenants are tenants are preconditioned or people in North America are preconditioned to, to live on multiple levels of their home, right? So even if you have a bungalow, most people have storage in the basement or a living room down there or, you know, something to that effect. Or if you have a two-story home, you've got multi-level living. So we were trying to recreate that. And in saying so, by giving tenants more natural light and a better look and feel like it's a full home rather than a quote-unquote basement apartment, we're able to drive the higher rents, especially when you compare it to, we'll say like uh I don't know, basement apartment versus like your main floor is going to drive higher rents than a basement would. So now we can drive those higher rents in both units as opposed to taking a hit for uh, for the lower level. Okay. So in a case of a two-story, you said both tenants would have uh, access to part of the main floor and part of the basement. Is there access to the second story for one of them or both of them as well? 
Yeah, so there's a bunch of different layouts that we can do. One is a first and second level. One is a basement and a first level. It just depends on the layout within the home and, and where the staircases right. are located. But I've done them in semis. I've done them in two stories. I've done them in bungalows. The possibilities are endless, man. Like it, it's a super cool way to do it. As mm-hmm. long as the renovation is cost effective and it makes sense, you know, right? It's a, it's a great way to go. If you can front end the renovations like that, you can reap the benefits of the cash flow for the next cool. however many years you own the property. Now, are there ever any challenges posed to you by the city? Because that's kind of the side by side is is different, and typically the city doesn't like different types of things. Um, <laughs> did you find any challenges in dealing with them when it came to the vertical split? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was a pain up front. It was really <laughs> tough. We appreciate well, your honesty. Yeah, well, it's just, it's just truth, man. Like I like to just tell it like it is, you know. And when I first started doing these vertical splits, I took the theory down to the the city. In this case, it was the city of Oshawa, and they were like, "Nope, absolutely not." I'm like, "Oh God, okay, you give me the rules, and I'll play within those rules." So they they gave me a series of of parameters, and I said, "Okay, well, if you, if we can't do this, you know, maybe we can do this, and if we can't do that, maybe we can do it this way." And by the time we were all done, we'd come up with a solution as to how we could go about cutting these units up and making them sort of with that townhouse feel, but still conforming to zoning standards. And and it worked out, you know, it it was the first step was getting it done on paper. And then the second step was getting it done in practicality, right? Because even the building inspectors had to to understand what was going on and how the fire separations were different and, and so forth. But in the end, it works out. And, you know, now we have today what we call the vertical split. And it's always fun to talk about this stuff. Very cool. So it was a bit of a learning curve for them as well, I guess, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So are you strictly involved? In, so, I mean, we've talked about a couple of things, but rehabs, flips, what strategies are you involved with? And are you involved with them all? Or is there something you're kind of putting your focus into now? Yeah. So right now we're doing, like I was saying before, we're doing a bit of a bit of everything. I'm a big opportunity investor. You know, like where can I find opportunity? Where can we drive value? You know, you hear about Warren Buffett being the biggest value investor in the world. I very much see real estate as the same opportunities, depending on how we look at things. So if that opportunity comes in the form of new development, you know, what can we do with the parcel of land? What are we paying for the dirt? How can it be serviced? How many units can we build on it? Can we sever? Can we rezone? You know, where do the opportunities lie there? So that's that's one cluster of the business, right? Uh, another cluster of the business is coaching. I really enjoy doing coaching and helping others to see some of the things that I see because I do see them differently. So that's another cluster. Something else that I enjoy doing in the business is flips and rehabs. So just taking a house that's an existing structure, something that's dated on the inside, dated on the outside, and turning that into either multi-unit, you know, duplexes, basement apartments, or the straight single-family home flip. There's opportunities that lie differently in each of those categories, you know, and it comes down to financing and timing and weather and the market and, and overall opportunities. So that's how we break it up. Very cool. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of factors to to take into consideration there for sure. Yeah. So there was this thing on the TV, the old television, uh, called the Tiny <laughs> House. I believe it made its first appearance. Is it in Oshawa, right? It sure did. It sure did. So tell me about that, and tell me tell me your role in that. Yeah. So the Tiny House was purchased that property back in I think it was 2018, around Christmas 2000. No, Christmas 2017, about a year ago, anyways, and. uh that property there was on a double lot. It was a double lot by way of lot width, but a single lot by way of zoning standards. So what I had done was I was looking at this parcel and I said, okay, we've got a house on the right side. We've got a house on the left side and we have a lot line in between that used to be there that is no longer there. So what I had to do was reestablish this lot line to give me two separate parcels. 
And by doing so, we then had a house on the left, which we sold off. And then we had this thing called the tiny house on the right, which once it was severed, a fully registered house with lot levies paid, fully serviced and all that stuff. And by way of 253 square feet of footprint, uh, we then had the smallest house that we could find to ever hit the MLS. Sorry, could you say that square footage again for me? 253. Holy jeez. Man, people have bathrooms bigger than this whole house. It's true. <laughs> so, and then you crammed everything in there, everything that yeah. you need. Yeah. So that house there was existing. We figure it was built back in the 40s. It was date stamped by a newspaper that we found under the floorboards. And we think that at some point around the war, after the war, uh, there was some kind of a CMHC program from, and this is hearsay, but there's some kind of a CMHC program where they were helping war vets build houses. And we think that this was maybe one of those subsidized initiatives where somebody had gone back and they built this property. And, and uh, ever since then, it had been a single family home, albeit small, but it was always serviced. And, and when I took over the property, somebody was living in it as a full single family residence. Wow. So history is repeating itself with tiny homes coming back. Man, like nothing's new. You know, everything comes and goes in cycles. And if you look in the past, you can look in the future. And because of the size of this house and because of the cost to buy land, service land, you know, construct permits, all this stuff, I don't think a house of this size will ever be built again, given our modern zoning practices in a metropolis such as Toronto or Oshawa or, you know, whatever. This is a this is a one time deal. Really? That's crazy. And obviously, I saw you got a lot of publicity. Um, with it because, it, I mean, like you said, it's a, it was a big deal. I mean, no pun intended. It was a big deal, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. It, we had, just off the top, I think we had five major news news coverages. We had BNN Bloomberg. We had uh, CP24. We had Global News, the Toronto Star, uh, like all kinds of stuff, man. It was it was amazing, the, the press coverage that we had on this. Awesome. Good for you. And I, did that, do you find that helps the business at all, like you? Did all yeah, of a sudden I mean, the phone start ringing a little bit more? It's super cool. I mean, things like, you know, your podcast pop up and things like other people's podcasts pop up and, hey, can you interview here? Can you come and speak for us? Come to our conferences, uh, you know, meet this, consult here. Like all of these things come out of nowhere um, because they, they see that you're putting yourself out there and you're getting in the media, you're getting in the news and they see that you can put a face to the brand. You know, putting a face to a brand is always cool. And uh, it's just fun. You know, I, I never really knew where it was going to go other than the fact that, hey, this is kind of a fun deal. I think we can make a few bucks at it, employ people, and, you know, maybe we'll get a marketing opportunity from it. I didn't know the exact end result of what was going to take place, but it's been really positive. Very cool. And I mean, it's something totally different. Like you obviously go to networking events as much as I do. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good information, a lot of good content. It's, it's about the networking, but you do see a little bit of the same thing here and there. And I mean, I think that's what probably attracted a lot of people to to your story is that it's totally different. Like you're the only one to have done this, right? Sure. So that's For a sure. pretty sweet title to have. You should have that on your headboard somewhere. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so let's switch over to financing. I, I mean, obviously your your portfolio and your career in investing in real estate has evolved uh, an immense amount, but financing the deals, how are these being financed now? I mean, you know what? Give me a little tidbit of how they were financed at the start and what you're doing now for making these deals happen. Yeah. So I was bank financing for a long, long time. Obviously, since the B20 rules came through, financing has changed for a lot of people and myself included. So when I first got started, I was predominantly using the big five banks, CIBC in particular. They were great uh, for me. Uh, Since then, you know, being self-employed, having debt service, having flips on the go, having active projects, having too many properties for your typical big five bank, 
you know, things change. So you really have to strategize. Are you going JV partners? Are you going private financing? Are you going credit union? Like you just, you kind of got to navigate it on a deal for deal basis. So what I always tell people is, you know, figure out your portfolio, take it to a big five bank first, see what they say, and, and then work it backwards from there all the way down from big five banks to private lending. Very cool. And how many doors are you guys currently uh, owning right now? Yeah. So on the rental property portfolio, it's just 35 doors. I keep half and I sell half. That's kind of my, it's kind of my go-to. Uh, so half flips, half holds. Right now, a large portion of that is a bigger multifamily building. That's uh, 14 units that we're working on. And it's a great portfolio. You know, I, I really yeah. enjoy managing it. Uh, it performs well. Uh, it cash flows well. I think that's a big thing that, that people miss out on is that carrying properties isn't as economical or isn't as cheap, quote unquote, as the masses make it out to be. You know, it, it takes cash to run oh, these yeah. properties. And, you know, if, if your property is making like 40 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month, you know, you've got to really make sure that you can substantiate that with cash flow elsewhere, you know, to pay the bills and come up with any repairs and things of that nature that, uh, that may come along with carrying a property like that. Absolutely. Tell me about this 14 unit. What are you guys doing with this place? Yeah. So that's 14 units on Lake Ontario. Uh, that consists of a sixplex oh, wow. building. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, sixplex building and uh, eight cottages. And this property we picked up about a year ago. It's uh, It's been a slow turnover. I'm uh, just working with the tenants and and working with all the trades and stuff like that to get the property back together. It was one of those ones that had kind of sat for, you know, 20, 30 years and largely untouched. So it needed quite a bit of work and, and uh, we're looking to give it uh, all the love it needs. Awesome. Very cool. So is it a resort? It's not a is resort. It like a... No, it's, it's, no? It's, out in, uh, it's out near the Belleville market. Okay, cool. And just on the outskirts. So a lot of military presence there. Yeah, which is cool, but no, it's not a resort. It's uh, it's a couple acres right on the water, and it was built I don't know sometime between 1950 and 1960 somewhere in there, and ever since it had just kind of been neglected and went downhill and went downhill, and and uh, we picked it up, got a great deal on it, and we're looking forward to turning it back over. Very cool. I look forward to seeing how that pans out for you. Yeah. Uh, management of properties. Uh, do you self manage all your properties? Like the 35 doors that you guys have, are you managing those? No, I'm not. So I've got full-time staff that do that. On the 35 doors, half of that is in Durham and then half of that is out uh, out in the Quinty market. We've got property managers out in the Quinty market that are managing the property for us now just by way of distance. But mm-hmm. anything locally, my staff look after the stuff. Okay. Now, talking about the Quinty market and because I have my cottage out just north of Napanee, so I'm not too far from there. What drew you out that way? And, you know, what? like, is it pricing? Is it, what is it that put you out that way? Yeah. So in this case, it was just the right deal. Um, I, I didn't know a lot about the Quinty market, Belleville, Trenton, Napanee, like anything out that way. I didn't have a whole lot of experience in prior to this, um, but the deal seemed right. I liked the property. Um, I thought there was lots of upside potential in the lift once we were renovated. So I thought, you know what, this is a really good opportunity to test this out. Let's try it. The numbers work. If investing out that way doesn't work for me, you know, I, I still know that this property has built in equity on day one. I think there's lots of upside, so we could always turn it back over to the market. And if I do enjoy the type of tenant that we're getting out there and the cash flow and stuff like that, then maybe that's the entry point into opening up another market over and beyond the Durham region, which we invest in now. Awesome. That's cool. So napkin numbers. What yeah. <laughs> the hell are napkin numbers? Tell me about this. Napkin numbers. So the napkin number formula is something that I started using back in 2012, 2013, 2014. 
And I realized that as I was looking at these deals, um, you know, whatever these deals may, may have been flips or basement apartments or whatever, I was using kind of the same calculations over and over and over to the point that I'm like, okay, you know, I got to come up with a streamlined way for me to evaluate deals because like on a weekly basis, I evaluate a hundred deals, you know? Wow. And in order to evaluate a hundred deals, boom, 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 you got to be doing it quick. You got to know your market. You got to know your construction costs, carrying costs and so on. So napkin numbers was like a four line, a four line item system that I came up with to say, okay, this is what I'm buying for. This is what it's going to cost me to carry it, to sell it again, like to transact it. This is what my construction costs are. And in the end, it's going to spit out a number that's either positive or negative. And we know that that is a good or a bad deal, you know, from a very high level. So that's, that's how I'm evaluating 100 deals a week is just by way of plugging in a few numbers and saying, yeah, this is good or nope, let's pass on that and move on to the next. So it's just a way of kind of keeping things simple to see if you should like look into it with a bit more in depth, I guess, right? Yeah, so, I mean, if you were doing a whole spreadsheet on a hundred things, you'd never leave your laptop. Oh my God. What a pain in the ass that would be to fill in every single number of the property taxes and all that, like brutal. So what I do is I, I like to just kind of keep it generic from a very high level, you know, just like, you know, what a multifamily investor may do with cap rate. I'm doing this with, you know, with some napkin numbers on single family homes and duplexes and triplexes and stuff. And uh, it's just a super quick way to do it. Very smart. Very smart. Uh, so Ryan, what is what does the future hold for RW Car Investments? What's the future look like for you guys? Yeah, well, we still got lots of deals on the go actively right now, and I like to continue that. You know, I'm always looking to scale. I'm always looking to grow. So adding to the portfolio is uh, is always important. I'm also looking to do some more coaching, which is fun. I think there's a there's a huge need in the market right now for people who are looking for training but don't have access to the investors that are actually doing the deals. You know, like like real boots on the ground. Who can I ask questions to? How can I get answers that I can't find in a book? You know, and how do I get real answers that we know are actually happening in today's market and not something that was printed 30 years ago? So training is a big one for me. I really enjoy doing that. And that's going to be my uh, my next up and comer. Very cool. I find um, in this industry, a lot of people label themselves as coaches, but I don't necessarily agree that they are, in fact, coaches. But I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there by saying, they need to be with somebody who's actually doing it, not just like, this is the way it should be done. You should go yeah. over here. It's like, no, look, let's go do this together. Let's. I'm going to show you exactly how it's done, not just kind of guide you with a PDF file. For sure. For sure. Like, I don't even have any pre-printed, you know, material. There's no course. There's no video. There's nothing like that. Like, I do phone calls. Come and see my deals. Yeah. My current mentor students, like, they actually come out and they meet my staff and they see the deals that I'm actually actively doing. You know, like, right. like boots on the ground. This is how I'm waterproofing a basement. This is why I'm doing it. This is what I see in this property because we can rezone it. This is how I'm doing this flip. This is how I'm doing this, whatever, right? Like come out and see it, touch it, feel it, smell it. See like, why is this opportunity? You know, what does opportunity actually look like? So that's a, uh, it's a ton of fun. It's gratifying, man, to see people transition from not being really confident in what they're buying to yes, that's what I want. For sure. And do you, uh, speaking of coaching, do you have a coach of your own? Do you do any, uh, do you have a mentor that you look to or anything like that? I do. I do. So up until last year, I never had any coaching, but you know, I, I really wanted to scale and I really wanted to grow. And at some point you hit that glass ceiling where you know, there's more out there, you know, that you can do better for yourself, but you just don't know how to get over that hurdle. So, you know, this year I did take on some coaching. I did do some more training. You know, obviously I spent a few bucks to do that, but you look at the lifetime value of upfronting a little bit of money now for reaping the benefits for years to come. And it becomes a no brainer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I really agree more. I it really does. More. Cool. Well, I wish you the best with the uh, the coaching. I'm sure it'll pan out for you. I mean, you got you're you're a doer, so I feel like that is the uh, the biggest draw for 
you know, I think a lot of people, they just, they want to get their hands on it as opposed to just sitting and listening and the old analysis paralysis and overuse of information, but not actually doing anything. So I think that'll be great for you. I wish you the best. We're going to go to the fire round. This is a series of questions I ask uh, all our all our guests, um, but I just look for a different perspective on the answers. So are you good to go? Let's do it. The fire round. So where do you see yourself, Ryan, in the next 12 months? In the next 12 months, I think the business is going to change from uh, active, very, very active, to a little bit more passive on my side. I need to hire more staff. Very cool. Where do you see the market in 12 months? Ooh, oh, dude, this is a tough one. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't honestly know. I keep a foot in both camps, but I think everybody, I, I always tell everybody to do the same. I keep a foot in the pessimist camp and I keep a foot in the optimist camp, and then I navigate the deal accordingly. So I'm always buying for equity in any property. So if you buy for equity, you know, your downside risk is you already know what the property is worth now. If property values fall, you're probably still okay. If property values continue to trend upwards, then you're even better. Right. Okay. So who do you learn from right now? Who do I learn from? Nobody. <laughs> Myself, so harsh. My team. So harsh. No, like I'm, I'm serious. No, I'm, just I'm, I'm not I'm a just big, uh, I'm not a big, like look up to, look up to somebody, uh, you know, idolize a Steve Jobs or idolize a Richard Branson. I don't, I don't really look up to anybody right now. I mean, I, I do read a, a book every couple months kind of thing. Right now I'm reading a book by, uh, what is it called? High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard, right? Okay. Doing a little bit of uh, internal work, which is cool. Um, so I guess you could say I'm, I'm learning from that. But uh, in terms of like idolizing people, that's not my style. Okay, cool. Hey, that's, that's a great answer. So you touched on it there, but read a book or listen to a podcast. Any, any in particular? Uh, 50-50. If I'm on the go or in the car, always have a podcast on. Uh, if I'm at home trying to relax, go to bed, that kind of thing, I'll either put on some YouTube or pick up a book. Okay, cool. If you could do one thing differently in the last year, what do you think that would have been? Oh, geez. That's a good one. That's a good one. One thing differently. Track my daily habits to find out what I can improve on, what I can be more efficient with, and how we could delegate more tasks out. That sounds fair. That sounds fair. What is a valuable, I don't know why I said it like that. What is a valuable piece of information you take with you that you would share with other listeners? viable piece, definitely, definitely become a sponge, you know, soak up any information that you can get either paid or for free, you know, from anybody out there doing whatever it is that you want to do. You know, like when I first got started, I joined a few different real estate clubs uh, locally here. And, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about real estate. So I didn't know the questions to ask. And I, I didn't know what I was missing out on either. And, uh, you know, going to these networking meetings once a month, twice a month, you can pick up on so much information that people are out there and, and willing to share with you. So, you know, definitely take all that. If there's a, anything that podcasts or anything can impart on anybody is soak it up, learn as much, as much, as much as you can. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's good information. Well, you passed the fire round with flying colors. What do you know? You made <laughs> thanks, it. Buddy. Thanks, buddy. Came out unscathed. So, all right. but yeah, Ryan, thanks very much. So much for, for taking the time. It sounds like you've got a lot of projects on the go. And I wish you all the best with those. And uh, hopefully we can do this again in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From the Real Estate Investors Lounge, thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our website at www.reilounge.ca for more episodes and information. 